We're in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, I remember as a, a child, we lived in Rochester, New York, and my mother's grand, or my mother's mother, my maternal grandmother, lived uh, just outside of Buffalo. And so a few times a year, we would pack up the family station wagon, and we would head uh, west, and we'd go to Buffalo, and, and she was always the A-grandmother. You know, everybody has an A-grandma and a B-grandma, you know? And she was the A-grandma. We loved going to her house, and from time to time, we would uh, stay overnight just because it was an hour and a half away, and, and we just loved that all the more because she was so generous, you know? So, um, you know, late at night, she would pack us full of Rice Krispies with bananas and She'd let us stay downstairs and watch cable television, which was like unheard of for us. You know, we didn't have that luxury in our home growing up. And so I remember on one particular occasion, my brother and I, we were watching an episode of The Twilight Zone. And that's a great thing to do to your kids right before they're trying to go to sleep is (laughs) let them watch something like that, you know, but grandma did. And I remember this episode, even to this day, the, the, um, the plot of the episode is that this man was visited by a stranger who held out before him a glass box that had a red button inside of it. And the man gave this other man a proposition, and he said, if you push the button inside this glass box, he said, you will be given a million dollars, but someone somewhere will die. And so the whole episode revolved around this man and his mental gymnastics as to whether or not he should break this glass and push this button. And you're wondering what's going to happen, is he going to do it, and the whole thing. And at the end of the episode, he finally does break the glass and push the button. And no sooner than he pushes it that you find out that, yes, the man is there with a briefcase with a million dollars in it, but the person who dies is the man who pushed the button. (laughs) Well, in this portion of the book of Genesis, we find a God that has created a perfect world. And we see that he has put two people in it out of his love for them to enjoy it. And there's one button in the garden that God has asked them not to push. He says, don't eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, know that you will surely die. Well, Eve, we learned in our last study, was confronted by the serpent who was possessed by Satan himself, and she was tempted and lied to, and she was deceived, and she took from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she ate of it, and her husband with her, and that's where we left off, and as we pick up now in verse 7 of chapter 3, we see the fallout from the fall, what took place after Eve partook of the fruit, and then Adam, that God had forbidden them to eat from. And so it tells us in verse 7, it says that the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, when Satan came to Eve and confronted her and gave her the, um, the temptation that he did, he told her that God knows not that you'll die if you eat the fruit, but that you'll live in a new dimension from what you're currently living in now. You'll have a knowledge of good and evil, and you'll be as God. And your eyes that are presently closed, was the implication, will then be opened, and you'll see things in a way that you never have before. Now, his promise is that they would be as gods. But what actually happened, yes, their eyes were opened, but it wasn't that they became as God, capital G-O-D, who created the heavens and the earth. 
But the first thing that happened is that they became aware of their own nakedness. And if you're taking note, the very first effect, thing that happened after they partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that man went from being controlled by God, possessed by God, knowing God, to being his own God. Man became egocentric, and that was the very first effect of the fall. It says that their eyes were opened, and then they knew that they were naked. The word knew means that there was an experiential, full and complete knowledge with understanding of the fact now that they are naked. The word naked, it just means exposed, it means transparent, it means that they became self-aware. And what's interesting about the word that's used in the Hebrew language for naked, it's the word eram, E-R-O-M. And why that's interesting is because the word naked was used at the very end of the last chapter to describe Adam and Eve prior to the fall, and it says that they were naked, but they were not ashamed. And the word that's used there, naked, is different. It's the word aram, A-R-O-M. Now, the amazing thing about those two words is that they mean exactly the same thing. So why are they spelled different? Why are they said different? Why are they completely different? Because they were naked before, and they are naked now. But this is a completely different naked than what it was back at the end of chapter 2 when they were amongst each other and not ashamed. The implication is that now they absolutely are ashamed and totally aware of the condition that they're in. What this represents, this knowledge of their nakedness, is the beginning of what we would call as Christians the self-life, or what we would call as humans as the self-life. Satan promised them deity, but what they got was self-deity. They became, at this time, their own gods, And the primary fallout of the fall when man partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that man became primarily and chiefly concerned with his own interests. And that was a condition that fell upon Adam and Eve, and then it was passed along to every one of their descendants, even to the present day. And probably one of the greatest plights that plagues humanity is the fact that we are primarily and chiefly concerned with self with our own interests, and everything exists to serve us and to serve our purposes. And that became our very nature at the fall. The Apostle Paul describes the condition in Ephesians chapter 2 this way. It's the first three verses. And I recognize that this is the third week in a row that I've read these verses with a completely different observation each time. They're amazingly saturated verses. But listen to how Paul describes it. He says that you, speaking of the Christian, he has made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. It's Ephesians chapter 2. There it is. (laughs) Peripherals working, you know. (laughs) Wherein those trespasses and sins, verse 2, in time past you walked according to the course of this world, meaning that the trespasses of man are the current that flows through this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, speaking of Satan and his control, his dominance over the affairs of this life and the cultures of this world. 
And then verse 3, among whom, that is the transgressors, among the transgressors, listen, also we all had our conversation. That's a King James word that means lifestyle. We all had our lifestyle in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature. Do you see that word right there? That it's our very nature when we come into this world that we are the children of wrath, even as others. That when every descendant of Adam and Eve comes into this world, we come into this world with a nature that is consumed with the flesh, the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, you say, well, what does it mean when it talks about the flesh? Just knock off the H and spell it backwards. What do you get? Self. And that's what the flesh is. It's living after self and the selfish desires that are in us. And from the time of the fall, those desires and that nature has been completely egocentric. We live to serve ourselves. Now, Paul takes this one step further and he describes the flesh life or the self life as a prison. He says in Romans chapter 7, verse 23, He says, but I see another law in my members or in my body, warring against the law of my mind or my will or my desires and bringing me into captivity, that's a prison, to the law of sin, which is in my body. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? In other words, Paul recognized that to live in the flesh Or to be an egocentric being is to live in a prison, a small prison, the prison of self. In the next chapter, in Romans chapter 8, verse 21, Paul says again, he says, Because the creature itself, speaking of you and I, also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Now, you can't be delivered from the bondage of corruption unless you first are in the bondage of corruption. And so he says, we'll be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors in pain together until now. In other words, from this time forward, man was not deified in the sense that Satan told them they would be, but rather man became his own God and he was effectively confined into the prison of self. And so mankind became a selfish being, and it was the very first manifestation of the fallen nature after they partook of the fruit. Now, what Adam and Eve could not escape after partaking of this fruit was the conscious awareness of the fact that what they did was wrong. It opened their eyes. They now have the knowledge of good and evil, but they couldn't escape the internal knowledge now that what they did was absolutely wrong, that this is not what they were created for, and thus there was a feeling of shame and a feeling of nakedness that they were now well aware of. They knew good and evil. They knew that God was good. They knew that selflessness was good. They knew that servanthood was good. They knew that obedience was good, that righteousness was good. And they knew that what they did their disobedience, their listening to the lie, their partaking of the fruit, and now the condition that they were in, they knew that it was bad. 
and thus their eyes were opened, they knew that they were naked, and thus they were driven internally to do what it says that they did at the end of verse 7. It says that they then sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves aprons. First mention of clothing in the Bible. Hand-stitched, handmade, out of fig leaves. It was a desire to try to cover the shame that they were now feeling. Now, what are clothes? Clothes are garments that are used to cover the naked self and to make what is not presentable a little bit more presentable. Or to say it another way, clothes represent a veil that separates between what is seen when a person looks at me and what actually is underneath the surface. And so they immediately felt driven to cover and to hide now this guilt that they're feeling, the shame that they're feeling, this new sense of of fallenness that they're feeling, and that they not have that part of them seen. They want it to be covered. So clothing is there for the sake of decency, for covering shame, for covering unattractiveness, But the feeling of nakedness that Adam and Eve were feeling went much deeper than just the outwardness of their physical appearance. Because really nothing has changed. They're still a married couple. It's not as though they were ashamed in in the the, the fact that they were seeing something of the other that they hadn't seen before. That, That was totally common to them. And it was just the two of them. There was no other humans that they had to hide from. They weren't worried about the animals going, oh my goodness, they're not wearing any clothes and the whole thing. There was something going on underneath the surface in the spirit and the soul that made them feel vulnerable and they were driven to then try to cover that up in some way. Isn't it true that there is nothing more unattractive in the world than self? I mean, when you see a self-willed child... There's something in it that's grieving to the parent and you almost grieve for the child because they don't even know the condition that they're in and what they're bringing forward. When you see a person, a human being, and the true motives behind their action is exposed and it's seen as being self-centered or self-serving or to have an agenda in some way that magnifies or benefits self, isn't it just the most disgusting thing in the world? When our own selfishness is exposed by something that we do or in some way we slip up, we're so ashamed of it because we know how ugly self is and what self looks like in the whole thing. When we hear words like self-important, self-absorption, self-indulgent, self-exalting, I mean, those words just turn something over in us and we think those wicked people that are like that, you know, (laughs) failing to see that that's exactly what we are. Ever since the fall of man, this has been the nature, the, 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 the instinct that's been in us from birth that we are selfish. And we know that it's true. Who do you look for when you see a group photo? <laughs> Am I in there? How did I look? What feeling or emotion do you have when there's five burgers left in the buffet and you're the sixth person in line? We all know exactly what that feels like. We live in a house with seven people. That's not the first time I'm going to bring that up tonight. (laughs) And I know what it looks like when you see the dinner in the middle of the table and everybody's looking at it. And I'm going, I know I'm the one that's going to get short. The whole thing. Why do I care? Why aren't I hilarious about that? Like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not going to eat tonight. (laughs) You know? 
because I'm selfish, because I look out for me. My self-interests are at the forefront of my person, and that's my nature. Sometimes before we leave the house to go somewhere, I'll take the last bit of coffee or I'll make myself some coffee and pour it in my nice Yeti travel mug and I'll bring it in the car. And Georgia will look at me as we're going out the door and I'll say, do you want me to make you a cup? <laughs> and she'll say, no, I just want to take a couple sips of yours. <laughs> oh, I have a plan for this. <laughs> I don't want to do that, you know. Because I'm selfish. Because it's what I am by nature. And so therefore, we come to a certain age in our life when we realize that self is unattractive. And what do we do? We cover it up. And man has become an expert in clothing the nakedness of self ever since the beginning. We are so good at hiding ourselves. And so we put on the clothing of kindness and compassion to cover up the indecency of our self-interests. We put on intelligence to cover up our ignorance that we don't want anyone to know is the reality of our, of our person. We put on the clothing of patience because we want to hide our aggression and our agitation and our lack of patience in things. We put on the clothing of strength because we don't want anyone to know our weakness and what we're vulnerabilities are. We put on the clothing of generosity to cover up our greed, our instinctive greed that's in us. We put on the clothing of benevolence to hide our desire for power and our desire to dominate and to consume things for ourselves. And in the fallen nature of man, we will clothe ourselves in whatever way is necessary to obtain what we want or to hide what we don't want other people to see. Now, here's the amazing thing is that part of this fallen condition that we're in is that our clothing even hides self from self. Meaning that oftentimes we deceive ourselves into thinking that our clothing is the reality of what we are. And it takes a work of God and a work of God's Spirit to reveal to us what we really are underneath the clothing that we cling to so closely. I think of the Apostle Peter. I'll die with you, Jesus. I'll never deny you. Jesus goes, Peter, that's a nice shirt. <laughs> but you're going to deny me three times before the cock goes, Lord, I'll die for you before I deny you. Oh, really? Wait till you see what that fabric's made out of. And then wait till you see what's underneath it. I think of Elijah. God, I, only I, I only am the one that serve you. Oh, yeah, Elijah. I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And by the way, why are you here running from that woman Jezebel who wrote you a little post-it note saying she was going to kill you. <laughs> if you're so strong, oh, God, no, don't look at that. That's just the man behind the curtain. Don't, no, no, look over there. God, look at that other thing. It takes a work of God to uncover the clothing and show self what self really is. What's amazing to me is that God actually sees what it is. I don't know about you, but I know I have been in a couple of situations in my life where I have literally ripped the seat of my pants. You ever do that? You know, you bend, they're old jeans. It's not size, it's the, the age of the clothes, you know. And you bend over and you hear it and you feel it. You're like, oh, no, I know exactly what just happened. And all of a sudden, you just feel this incredible vulnerability. I remember when I first started as a carpenter, I was a young, you know, 21, you know, and I was just a kid, just a moron, an idiot. And I wore these, like, twill um, pants to work, and they gave me a demo saw, which is like this big, huge chainsaw thing that you use to cut steel, and it shoots sparks everywhere. 
And I had my leg right behind the sea of sparks and I lit the leg of my pants on fire. I literally was on fire, like stamping it out. And then I, and then I was like bald legged, hair singed from, from the ankle down, you know, for the rest of the day. Same day, same pants. I go into the outhouse to pee and the zipper breaks when it's down. Okay, so now I got no, pan, no thing and the zipper's down. And I'm not even kidding you, about an hour later, the button snapped, it broke right off. So now the pants are open, they're cut off at the knee, and I have to get a, a piece of metal like wire and tie it through the belt loops just to hold my pants on for the rest of the day. I felt like such a moron. But can I tell you, I would take that any day, any time, over having self-exposed in the way that self gets exposed from time to time. I told you earlier that we have seven people that live in our household. And do the math. If you have seven people that live in your house, how many shoes do you own? The math is 7,000. <laughs> <laughs> and each night, one of our kids has a different room that they have to clean, and they switch each month which room they're going to go into. And one kid has the first room where all the shoes pile up and congregate throughout the day and have Bible studies, you know. <laughs> and the kids sometimes are in a hurry and they want to either get to bed or do something else and so they just take the shoes and they pick them up and they just dump them in the closet you know? and there was a time maybe I don't know two three months ago that I was looking for a pair of shoes and it was the only pair of shoes I could wear at this particular time and I could only find one one shoe and there's like three different places to look for shoes and so I'm looking through shoes and I'm looking through shoes and I'm looking at my watch and I've got to go and I can't find this shoe and my pants ripped, not, not, not literally, not my jeans, the other, the invisible ones. I, I lost it. And I took the shoes and I just started dumping the shoes in the middle of the room, just buckets of shoes everywhere, just piles, throwing the shoes around, you know. And about 10 minutes later, I finally found my shoe on the other side of the room, underneath some other thing, behind a thing. And I just left the house and I left this hurricane of shoes. My flesh was exposed that day. This patient, docile, amazing father <laughs> was exposed. You know. And it happens to us from time to time, doesn't it? Our flesh gets exposed because we know what it is. It's a result of the fall. By nature, giving ourselves to the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and by nature we are children of wrath, even as others, and not alone in the whole thing, it's the condition of man. We hide behind our clothing in the whole thing. Um, and so man became egocentric. Man begins to hide himself. And then man hides himself from God. Notice in verse 8. It says that they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And so Adam hears the voice of God as he was walking. He's aware of his presence, and he finds himself now in the midst of a fallen condition. He sinned against God, and he knows something is different. And what amazes me about this is that Adam and Eve did not lose a sense of the awareness of the presence of God, even though they were in a fallen state. They were fallen, yet they knew there was a God, and they knew that he was near. And you know that's a truth about every human being? I don't care how much a person lies to another person or to themselves and says that I don't believe in God, there is no God. There is no such thing as a true atheist. 
Because the Bible says that God has written into the very conscious fiber of our beings the reality that he exists. And every human being knows that it's true. But yet mankind, fallen from God and feeling guilty before God, seeks to hide himself from God. And so what do Adam and Eve do? They hide themselves in the midst of their surroundings and they seek to try to blend in with their surroundings hoping that God won't notice them. If I can just blend in, I can go unnoticed and God will just walk by and will just continue like nothing ever happened. And that's the mindset of human beings. Throughout the Bible, God likens men unto trees. He does it concerning his people Israel in the book of Numbers. In Psalm chapter 1, man is directly compared to a tree. God says that the man who loves the law of God will be like a tree planted by the living rivers of water. In the gospel, Jesus touched the blind man's eyes and he said, what do you see? And he said, I see men as trees walking. And Jesus corrected him one more time so he could see all things clearly. But God kind of holds this up. And isn't that a fitting analogy when we think about the way that people try to hide from God in their fallen condition? They just try to blend into the sea of humanity. They measure their morality based upon the worst that they see in people and the best that they see in people. They find the median behave just a few notches of what they think is above that, and they think, I'm just going to blend in here, and God, you've got no problems with me, and I've got no reason to deal with you, and let's just go on our separate ways in the whole thing. And that's exactly the instinct that Adam displays here now in a fallen condition. He just wants to hide away from God and to go completely unnoticed. It's an amazing act of grace what happens next. Notice in verse 9. It says that the Lord God called unto Adam and he said unto him, where art thou? Now, does God not know where Adam is? The Bible teaches very clearly that God is omniscient, meaning that God knows everything. He knew what Adam was going to do before he did it. He knew that Adam did it. He knew the condition that Adam is in now that he has done it. And God knows exactly where Adam is. But what's amazing to me here is that God asked the question, not because he needs to know, but because he wants to bring it to Adam's mind. Adam, do you know where you are? Where are you, Adam? Do you recognize, do you have a conscious awareness of what you've fallen from? Is this what you were made for? Is this the condition that I designed you to be in? He's seeking to bring conviction to Adam and ultimately to bring forth confession from Adam. And it's an amazing grace that God would visit Adam at all. I mean, you would think that a God as powerful as our God, who's done as good as he has and now has been sinned again so openly that he would just say, you know what, I'm done with this try. Let's get rid of Adam and we'll try again with someone else. But he doesn't do that because he's not a God that delights to destroy, but he's a God that desires reconciliation and redemption. And so God now comes to Adam and Eve in their fallen condition in an act of pure mercy and grace seeking to restore and to bring them back into fellowship with himself. And so how does he do it? He seeks to draw out conviction and confession, to make them aware of their fallen condition, and then to bring out confession concerning their sin to open the door for reconciliation. And so he asks one question. He says, Adam, where are you? And hopefully, in God's mind, it brings to Adam an awareness of what he has fallen from, in the condition that he is now presently in. Notice the answer that Adam gives in verse 10. It says that he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You know the first thing that jumps out at me in that verse? 
is that there's four eyes. Adam was the first four eyes. I heard. I was afraid. I was naked. I hid myself. He has a case of the I, me, mys. You ever known someone like that? You have a two-minute conversation and you can't count the amount of times you hear I, me, and my. I, I, me, my, my, I, 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 me, my, my, I, I. It's the condition of man. Adam should be aware of it even as he says it, that this is not right. This is not where he's supposed to be. Notice that the emotions, the things that are going on within him, first of all, it says that he was afraid. First of all, he was aware. Second of all, he was afraid. He's fearful now. There's a guilt within him. God has gone from friend to judge, and Adam knows that he's on the wrong side of God at this time, and it produces within him a fear. He's ashamed. He's feeling guilty, and he finds himself hiding from God. And he says, I was afraid, and so he says, because I was naked, and so I hid myself. And so God replies, and he said in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree whereof I commanded you that you should not God calls him out directly concerning his sin, and he says, who told you that you were naked? Did you disobey my command? And so God puts Adam face to face with his condition and his guilt, and he confronts him with it, and he forces an answer out of Adam. And notice the answer that Adam gives in verse 12. And it says, and the man said, the woman. Why are you laughing? <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> the woman that gets worse that you gave me to be with me. She gave me of the tree and I did eat. This isn't my fault, God. It's not my fault that I'm in this condition. It's her fault and it's ultimately your fault, God. If you hadn't allowed the situation, if you hadn't brought her, hi, honey, her, <laughs> I know this is going to be awkward later, but you'll understand. <laughs> if you hadn't, then this hadn't been the condition that it's in, and this is your fault. He blames God, but notice, he, God got what he was after at the end of the verse. Notice, he said, and I did eat. Confession. That's what God was after. Blame, confession. God says, okay, you sit there now. He turns to Eve. It's your turn, verse 12. And he says to her in verse 13, the Lord God said unto the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent. <laughs> the serpent beguiled me, and here's the confession, and I did eat. Notice the human condition. Isn't it amazing? I mean, first they hide themselves from themselves. Then they hide themselves from God. Then they hide themselves behind themselves. It's her. No, it's him. It's the serpent. It's everything. It's the fallen nature. But they confess in the midst of the whole thing. And now God, after the confession, the door is open for restitution and resolution. God is always after confession. There's two things that are important to God when he works with a fallen human being. Number one is conviction, and the other one then is confession. Conviction is a Bible word that just simply means the conscious awareness of my fallen sinful condition. And every single person that comes to a saving knowledge of God through the person of Jesus Christ must come through the way of conviction. 
of understanding that I am a sinner, that I have sinned against God, regardless of what other people have done, regardless of the environment that I've been placed in, the circumstances of my life, regardless of my upbringing or my advantages or disadvantages, there's nothing to blame but in all nakedness before God, His commandment plus my behavior renders me guilty before Him. That's conviction. And the Spirit of God is in the world today, and part of His ministry in the world is to bring fallen humanity under conviction. And so God comes to people today in the same way that He came to Adam and Eve then, and He says, what is this that you've done? And we try to hide behind as as much as we can. We try to blend in and ignore it and put it away, quiet the voice. We blame it on others, we compare ourselves, and we just clothe ourselves more and more and more, try to hide the reality of our fallen condition. But when God can successfully get underneath all of that and bring us to the place where we're face-to-face with the fact that we're fallen, estranged from Him, and alienated with Him, then what God is looking for is confession. What's confession? I did eat. Or, I am guilty. Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm fallen. I have rebelled against you. I am the one of whom it says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray that the poison of snakes is under my tongues, that my feet are swift to shed blood, that my hands are quick for evil, that from the top of the head to the sole of the foot, the whole thing is sick and full of putrefying sores. I am the leper. I'm the lost man. I'm the lost woman. God, it's me. And I need your salvation because there's no amount of clothing that can cover up what I am on the inside. And if I wear these clothes long enough, they're going to wear out, they're going to rip, they're going to smell because what's inside rips and smells. God, help me, save me. And when God gets conviction and then confession, 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And now that Adam, through the door of conviction, has come to confession, him and Eve, now God can deal with them and He can restore them, which is exactly what He's going to do. Notice God now deals with the serpent in verse 14. It says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, contention, hatred, disdain, between you and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and you shall bruise his heel. So in this section, this portion that we would either call the curse or we might call it the Adamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Adam after the fall, the first thing that God does is he turns his attention to the serpent and he lays a curse upon the serpent. He changes him from an upright being, and we don't know what that looked like, to now one that with no arms or legs will slither upon his belly. And that we do know what it looks like. He says that your food will be the dust of the earth. And thirdly, God says that he'll put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between her seed and the seed of the serpent. You say, well, what in the world is that? Well, in a very literal sense, I don't know too many women that like snakes. But I do know some can handle them. And although this is an obvious literal thing, 
This is much deeper than just the literal hatred or enmity that exists between women in general. I don't like snakes either, you know, and I'm not a woman, you know. So what exactly is he talking about here when he says that I will put enmity between you and the woman? Who is this woman that he's talking about here in, in, in the passage? Well, she's figurative and she's prophetic. And what God is talking about here speaks of future events because God speaks of it in the future tense. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, something that will happen in the future. And then he speaks of a future event at the end of the verse when he says, it shall bruise thy head and you shall bruise his heel. That's an event that hasn't happened yet. Meaning that what God is saying to the serpent here is something that is prophetically to take place in the future between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, this woman that he's speaking of is a very unique kind of a woman. Why? First of all, because women don't have seed. They don't contribute that part of things to the reproductive process. And so for a woman to have a seed, she has to be a particular type of a woman. And second of all, she's unique in that God says that she will deliver a death blow or the seed of this woman will deliver a death blow to the serpent. So who is the woman that he's talking about? The serpent is none other than the nation of Israel that God will bring into the world through the seed of Adam and ultimately then the seed of Abraham. In Revelation chapter 12, you can read that passage on your own. It becomes very clear that she, Israel, is the fulfillment of this. How so? Because the seed of Israel was none other than Jesus Christ himself. Israel is the woman that brought the Savior into the world. And there is enmity between the seed of Israel and the spawn of Satan. The power that now works in the world both by spirit and one day in the form of a man who will be called the Antichrist. And so there's enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman being none other than Jesus Christ himself. What does that mean? It means that this passage is the earliest prophecy of a coming Messiah that we have in the Bible. And that's an amazing thing to realize. Because it means that the first mention of the gospel of Jesus Christ is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And it means that God already had a solution in place for the curse from the very beginning when it started. He didn't have to come up with it after the fact. He already knew what he was going to do. And as soon as confession was made, atonement was provided for. And as it was true with Adam, so is it true with us as well. As soon as confession is made, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the very first thing that God does after confession of sin is made is he announces the provision of atonement through a Messiah, a Savior that will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. Then God turns his attention to the woman in verse 16. He says, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception." In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over you. And so the way that the curse is going to affect the woman's side of man on things is God says that he will greatly multiply her sorrow and her conception, that in sorrow she will bring forth children. 
And it speaks, of course, of the literal pain that exists in childbearing. And anybody here that has given birth, you know what that is. I was there to experience it secondhand, not firsthand. But I, I, I did observe that it wasn't a pleasant experience. <laughs> but I believe that the sorrow that God is talking about here, when it talks about the sorrow and the conception, and it second time brings the sorrow forth, is not the sorrow of just bringing the child into the world, the pain of the delivery. Jesus himself said that that pain is forgotten as soon as the woman holds the child for the first time. My wife said that's true. I, I would say it's true, but I, that's not fair. She said, though, to me, you know, and I know her, she wouldn't lie. You know. She said that it's true, that you forget. The pain is, a, is, a, is gone. Like once you hold the child, it's like it's just gone. But there is a sorrow that goes with motherhood in a fallen world. And I want you to just think about this for one moment. Think about Eve. Not too long from now, she's going to have a son. His name is going to be Cain, and the joy of having a son is going to be brought to her. She's actually going to believe that he's the Savior that God promised. Then she's going to realize the truth of the matter a little while later when Cain, her firstborn, kills Abel, her secondborn. And the sorrow of motherhood then begins to resonate. You mean it isn't just the skin knee? It isn't just the, the crying at night? This goes on into adulthood, and, and, and I never get to stop being a mom. I feel the pain... They're stepping on my heart. I, I have to endure the difficulty of this. And those of you that are here that are moms, you know exactly what this means. You never stop being a mom. And in a fallen world, it's one of the most difficult things a human being can have to endure is to watch the effects of a fallen world take its toll on your kids. And no one can escape it because we all live in a fallen world. And there's a sorrow that's attached. There's a blessing but there's a sorrow that's attached to motherhood and that you carry the hurts of your children in a way that no one else can understand except for you who is the mother in this whole thing. The second thing that God says to the woman is he says that you're going to have a desire to lead your husband, but he's going to rule over you. That's what it means when it says that your desire will be to your husband. Meaning that as it was in you to take of the fruit and to usurp a place higher than God, the effect of that Decision is going to carry into your psychological person throughout your generations. And it's going to be a part of you to want to rule over your husband, but that's not the position that I've given to you in the marriage relationship. He's to rule over you. You're to live in submission to him, even though you feel more competent, and you probably are, and many times you are. And even though you have a greater vision and a greater understanding of things, making you feel that you're more competent, that's not the position that I have ordained that you be in. And so your desire is going to be to rule, but you're constantly going to have to fight against that desire and bring yourself into subjection to your husband's wishes and desires because that's the way that I've ordained it to be in the order of the family. And you're going to feel the effects of that and the weight of that in this curse that, that, that I have. Now you say, well, this is heavy. You know, God's laying something on them that's going to be with them for their whole life. The sorrow of motherhood, the pain of, of this, this circumstance. How is, why is God doing this? Is he seeking to just punish the woman, punish the man? Is that the reason for the curse? In the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, the prophet Jeremiah, speaking of the, the woes of living in a fallen world, he says this concerning God. He says that he does not willingly afflict the children of men. Meaning that God is not just going, well, I'm going to show you now what it's like to be cursed in a cursed world. And here, take this and take this and take this and take this. 
No, 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 no. God is extremely calculated in what he is giving them in this curse. Why does God make this condition the plight of a fallen female? Why? Here's why. Because in the pain and in the difficulty of living in that life place, it will cause her to have to lean on God completely for strength, for ability, for trust, for hope, and for help. And God has put the woman in his grace in a place where she'll have to lean on him and draw from him to be who it is that God has made her to be. And in that, she'll find life. And that's always the desire of God. He now turns his attention to the woman and he looks at the man. She gets one verse, he gets three verses. And it says, unto Adam, he said, because you have hearkened unto the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face you shall eat bread until you return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust you shall return. And so man is cursed in the place of his labor. Cursed is the ground, and the natural tendency of the ground is going to bring forth thorns and thistles, and you're going to have to reverse the natural course of thorns and thistles and cause and force the earth to produce for the sake of feeding yourself and feeding your family. Your role and position in this world, O man, is that you will remove the natural obstacles that are before you in the sweat of your brow, you will force productivity, and then you'll maintain it in the face of opposing forces. Now, how many men can say amen? Yep, that's exactly what it's like out there in the world. It doesn't matter if you're a farmer or whether you're a lawyer. It doesn't matter if you're a banker or any other occupation in the world. This is the condition that we're in. We're swimming upstream, and it's by the sweat of our brow that we're to do it. I want you to notice the, the phrase that God uses there in verse um, 17, when he said, cursed is the ground for your sake. Do you see that there? Men especially, I want you to underline that in your Bible. Circle it and put a little star. That God said the ground is cursed, but notice that the ground is cursed for your sake. It's actually an act of grace that God has made it that we have to provide and produce through the sweat of our brow and by labor and difficulty and toil and against op opposition and opposing forces. Why? Because what happens when someone has idle time and idle hands? They get themselves into major trouble. I watched recently an expose on a man who won a mega jackpot lottery. Like you're talking about in the 200s of millions of dollars. And they interviewed him when he was on his deathbed dying of a disease. And they asked him, about that experience of winning the lottery. He said, it's the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life. If I had a time machine, I'd go back in time and I would tear up the ticket. He said, it ruined every part of my life. It ruined my family, it ruined my kids, and it ruined me. It ruined everything for me to have that. Why? Because in a fallen condition, man can't handle unlimited time and unlimited resources. We don't know how to manage it. And so God in his grace has made it difficult for us to make the earth produce because he knows that if we have one minute or one dollar more than what is necessary for us, that we'll ruin our lives with it. And it's in his grace that he's given us labor to provide. 
<laughs> I heard that. <laughs> he said he did a good job of it, you know. <laughs> There's a hidden warning at the end of the verses for the man. God says, remember that from dust you have been taken and to dust you will return. It's a hidden warning. Listen, that God is warning man. He's saying, listen, by the way, concerning this life and your produce and productivity and place in this world, don't forget, it's all going to burn and you can't take it with you. It's a warning that you hope that all will heed. Well, the after effects given then in verse 21, it says that unto Adam then, uh, I'm sorry, verse 20, it says that Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and he then clothed them. Now, in this act of God at the end of this thing where God clothes them, he removes the fig leaves that they have sewn together, and he now gives them a new set of clothes. He gives them coats of skins. What he is giving to Adam and Eve is he's giving them both a principle and a prophecy. Now, the principle is that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. And God said that to Adam very clearly. In the day you eat of it, you will surely what? Die. Die. The wages of sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So sin cannot be put away unless something dies. And so Adam and Eve had to watch God take a lamb, kill it, dress it, take its clothes, and then God used the skins of that lamb to cover over their nakedness and their vulnerability. It was with the shedding of blood that God provided covering for their vulnerability and for their shame, but it was through blood. It wasn't just a principle, but it was also a prophecy. A prophecy of what? Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus for the first time? He said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb that God has provided as a means to put away the sins that you and I have committed, in fact, the sins of all humanity. And this was a, a prophecy of what God would do in ultimately providing himself as a lamb to take away the sins of all mankind. And we close with this thought, and that is this, is that the cross of Jesus Christ, the place where the Lamb of God was smitten and where he bled out and died, is the only real and lasting remedy for the flesh and for our sins. For the sin in that the blood covers and takes it away and for the flesh and that that's the means that God has provided for you and I to deal with the self-life. There's nothing that you can do to redeem self, the flesh. It is completely irredeemable. You can't put any good amount of clothing, cologne, covering. There is nothing that you and I can do to adequately deal with our flesh. But in the cross of Christ, God has made a way for you and I to deal effectively with our flesh. Jesus said throughout the Gospels, he said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his what? Cross daily and follow me. And he added these words, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And in Luke's Gospel, he says, take up his cross daily. That the cross of Christ... On the other side of the Lamb's forgiveness is the means of which God has provided for you and I to deal with our flesh. So how do we deal with our flesh when it comes out? The ugliness of it, when it's exposed and our clothes are stripped away. You know how? You bring it to the foot of the cross. 
And there by faith, you lay it down at the foot of the Son of God and you say, God, this is the truth and reality of what I am. But I believe by faith in the name of your Son that you have provided a way that this flesh can be done away with. And God, I'm bringing it to you. Crucify it. Don't reform it. Don't clean it. Don't hide it. Kill it, Lord. Kill this tendency in me. Kill this anger. Kill this lust and covetousness. Kill this greed and desire for power. Kill this agitation and this lack of patience. God, kill this lack of kindness or this hatred towards another person. Kill this bitterness that's in me towards the people that have offended me. God, kill this jealousy that I have inside. Kill it, God. Take it to your cross and slay it there. And here's the amazing thing. Is that God not only has the willingness to do it and the power to do it, but he does it. And here's another amazing thing. Did you know it's impossible for you to crucify yourself? You can't do it. You would nail one hand to the cross and you'd be out of luck. You'd be holding a hammer, but you'd have no means, right? That's good news. Because anybody in here who's ever tried to deal with your own flesh, you know it's impossible, right? You can't. You can clothe it. You can clean it. But you can't get rid of it. God can. God does. So we bring it. We say, God, your spirit, your word, my actions, your command, it exposes me. This is what I am. I'm a fallen, sinful child of wrath by nature who lives to fulfill the desires of my flesh and of my mind. Your word condemns me. Your spirit reveals me. But your promise is that your cross and your blood forgives me. And so I bring myself to you, all that I am, all that I'm not. And I ask, oh God, that in your grace and in your mercy, you would let the blood of the Lamb and the power of his cross not only forgive my sins, but remove from me this heart of flesh and fill me with your spirit of love. God is so willing, when we come to him in humility and confession, to fulfill that prayer and that plea on our behalf. It's what he came to do. Father, we just thank you tonight, Lord. We stop here at this place and, and it leaves us at a place where we're in awe of the very Son of God, the one who died and gave himself for us. And what we're asking tonight, God, is for a fresh vision that our eyes would be opened, that we would not only be able to see ourselves, but that we'd be able to see your Son. I think right now, God, of Eve who took and did eat of a tree of which she was forbidden to eat from. But I think of Jesus, who is the tree of life, who sat with the disciples and he said, take of my body and eat, and take of my blood and drink, for it's freely given to you. And our prayer tonight, O oh Lord, is that at the foot of your cross and in the presence of your Spirit, that we might partake of Jesus in a new and fresh way. That our sins and shame would not just be covered and hidden, but exposed, crucified, and done away with. And that in its place, that your Spirit and the fruit of your Spirit would fill us and make us new. So, Lord, tonight we pray a prayer of surrender. And we ask, O oh Lord, those places where we've hidden, those places that we've tried to cover, those things that we've failed to deal with, 
perhaps our very soul itself. We've hidden it behind religion, behind church attendance. We've tried to blend in with others, but we've never come to Christ. Oh Lord, tonight, would you make us new? Would you hear our prayer, oh Lord? Would you do for us what we can't do for ourselves? And would you would make us, oh God, what by nature we could never make ourselves? So help us, Lord. Thank you for giving us this insight. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And we ask this tonight in Jesus' name. Perhaps tonight you're here and as you sit and listen, and the Spirit of God does His work in each one of us, you recognize, you realize that there's things in you that just need to be brought to the foot of the cross. As we close tonight in song, the altar is open. If you want to come and just say, God, I want to present this to you. and Just lay it down at your feet. Lord, change this. Crucify it. Murder it in me. It's a tendency I have. God, I'm not worthy of you. Take the step and come forward. No one will bother you. Take your time here. As the worship team plays, when you're done, just return to your seat. But it's a way you can put feet to what the conviction of the Spirit is drawing out of your life. And so you're invited to spend some time at the altar before the Lord as we close. Let's all stand together, shall we?